Alright, here we go for Instagram. So good evening everybody. Welcome to this special edition of Tetare episode 8. And I am in the presence of greatness. <laughs> Beside me is the legendary Professor Teo Yo Yan, the author of uh, This Is What Inequality Looks Like, which was a national bestseller and it sold 30,000. 34,000 copies so far and hopefully a few more after this. So we will be discussing uh, Professor Chiran Georges and Professor Donald Lowe's book, uh, PAP versus PAP. Uh, we will start in, at, in about two minutes uh, with them because we are doing this uh, over Zoom and Instagram at the same time. Okay, so, uh, so be patient with us. Uh, there may be some technological issues on <laughs> our side, especially. Uh, so, Prof, do you want to say anything? First? Oh, uh, just to say good evening. Thanks for joining us this evening. We're very excited to be talking about Donald and uh, Sharon's book. Um, and I hope lots of people have already read it. And if you haven't, that your interest will be piqued after tonight. Yes, definitely. If you haven't, you must. I think it's one of the must reads for Singapore politics. Together with this is what inequality looks like as well, of course. <laughs> Alright, so uh, today, uh, feel free to ask us any questions. Uh, you can ask uh, me questions over WhatsApp as well. I have it uh, on my laptop. And you can just type in the questions here. Uh, so, uh, we will wait just a couple of minutes and then we'll get them on uh, so that we can start it together with Zoom. You guys can hear us? Mm -hmm. Can you get? Can you hear us? Hi. Hi, Sharian. Hi, Donald. Hi. Hey, hello. Yes, we can hear yeah, you. Okay. So let's let's begin. Welcome everybody to this book launch come Tetaret session uh, organized by Academia.sg uh, and myself. Uh, so today I am extremely privileged and honored to have three of the brightest minds Singapore has to offer. Okay, Professor Stio Professor Jiran George and Professor Donaldo. So, just for this session, I'll call you guys by name because there are three professors. Uh, so, uh, we will be discussing this book, PAP versus PAP. If you haven't gotten it, it's already sold out. Uh, but you can get it in about two weeks' time, hopefully. And you can order it online as well, right? Yes. Uh, you guys are still accepting orders? Yes. Our printers are not very far, so it's already back in stock. It's no longer sold out. Alright. <laughs> you didn't keep it sold out for a little bit longer. <laughs> Alright, so uh, we will be taking uh, questions from the audience as well, if you have any. So you can ask us over Zoom and, and over uh, Instagram as well. So maybe as a start, I mean, you guys know all three of them. If you are here, you know all three of them. So I don't really need to introduce them. Uh, just uh, just to say that we are all here in our personal capacity. Right. And so let's begin. Uh, maybe uh, for a start, uh, both of you can just briefly summarize what your book is about and why it's important. And just just briefly and in layman's terms, maybe we can start with uh, Donald uh, because sure, of yeah. Chinese privilege. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Actually, when, when we wrote the book, it, the, the two things that weighed most heavily on our minds, of course, was 
where the pandemic and how it has shaped uh, or reshaped or, or, or altered significantly uh, Singapore's environment, right, in terms of deglobalization, in terms of moves to move uh, moves towards a less carbon intensive, uh, more sustainable, a more low carbon economy. And also in terms of uh, the disruptions to supply chains, which Singapore is so much a part of. Uh, and of course, the second big event that we were, you know, commenting on was, uh, was you know, general elections 2020. But now that the book has come out and we have had a chance to sort of sit back and think about, you know, trying to contextualize the book, I think in many ways the book can also be read as a defense of Singapore's system of elite governance. Uh, and one of the feedback, one of the reactions I've gotten from many of my friends is why I've written a book that tries to legitimize, defend, justify Singapore's system of uh, elite governance. So maybe, you know, you allow me to spend a couple of minutes explaining that. Mm -hmm. uh, the first is, I'm, personally, I'm a, a beneficiary of elite governance. I, you know, Chadwin and I, we won government scholarships. Uh, I served 10 years in the Singapore administrative service, as elite as it gets. Uh, I then had the privilege of, you know, teaching at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, training the next generation of Singapore's elite civil servants. So I, I'm very much a beneficiary of that. But the second more important reason, I think, is that if you look around today's world, which is your question, uh, Walid, uh, one of the major issues we face is that in the last five, six years, we've seen really a nativist, populist backlash against elites, right? Against uh, governing elites, political elites, business and corporate elites. And that's making the world uh, a darker, you know, more and, and, and an uglier place. Uh, and it's making a, in, in this world, I think Singapore's system of elite governance actually by comparison uh, is, is, is going to be our comparative advantage. It's going to be our competitive advantage. And so, you know, when, when you look at the American elections, the recent elections, for instance, you realize that, you know, what we've seen in Trump's dystopia is really a democratic revolt against, you know, technocratic expertise, against expertise more generally. And so we thought it was important in this context uh, to kind of come up with reasons why we think this system of elite governance shouldn't be abandoned, right? even if it needs to be tempered with more democratic deliberation and democratic engagement, it, but it should be strengthened and preserved. And so, and, and, and so in that context, uh, we have tried to you know, organize the book in three parts. The first is really around the context, right? And the first, the pandemic the, and the challenges that throws up and how it has hastened the trends that we already saw at the end of the global financial crisis. The second part focuses on the kind of policy reforms we need to sort of cope with this uh, post-pandemic and also the world that hyper-globalization has produced, right? So our second part is called the you know, economic and social justice. Uh, the third part is really the kind of longer-term political reforms, systemic reforms we need, whether it's around, you know, uh, we you know, uh, forming our media system, remaking our media system, whether it's in terms of, uh, you know, democratic reforms, uh, more progressive uh, ways of policy making, and, and, and uh, how would we, you know, forge a democratic consensus in this more, you know, polarized and in this more potentially more partisan uh, society. Uh, so that's how I see, you know, how, how to contextualize our book, in the con you know, given the kind of challenges and changes we see uh, around the world for the, maybe for the last 10 years since the global financial crisis. And then, Sharon, you want to... Yeah, sure. Now, of course, you don't need to buy the book. You can sit 
Thanks a lot uh, for that introduction. I think um, since since you've already mentioned the word reform, reform of course is at the center of the, the central thesis in your book. Um, that in the near to medium term, the reform of politics is crucial to Singapore, and you contrast this to reform of policies. You make the distinction between reform of politics, you know, uh, and reform of policies. Can you now explain a little bit? what the difference is between reforming politics and reforming policies, or perhaps how, perhaps how you see the two as linked, and then tell us a little bit more about this central thesis and, and why you think it stands. Yeah, maybe I'll start with uh, reforming policy. Uh, yeah, we, you, you're right, you, yeah, we certainly made that distinction. I think for, for me at least, uh, and Sharon can chip in, uh, policy reform does not require sort of an ideological significant ideological change on the part of the PAP, nor significant change with respect to the political system, right? The way politics is conducted. Uh, policy reform is the substance of government, whereas political reform, I would say, refers not just to the style of politics that the PAP engages in, but also a reform of, you know, political institutions um, and the way politics is conducted. So policy reforms, in my view at least, which is the second part, you know, occupies a big part of the second part of the book around mm -hmm. economic and social justice, uh, is well within the PAP's ideological reach, right? It's well within their ideological range. And policy reforms that we talked about there would be things around uh, expansion of social safety nets, you know, make, making social spending more universal, inequality reduction, wealth taxes, 
I think those are well within the PAP's, you know, ideology. Uh, and we've got a strong state, a competent bureaucracy that can quite uh, easily, quite uh, uh, implement these things in a sort of incentive-compatible, efficient sort of way. Uh, political reform requires, you know, a, a, a different set of orientations, right? Uh, it has to do a lot with, a lot more with institutions, right? It's a political reform involves institutional change. So maybe I'll toss that difficult part of the question to <laughs> Charian. Something that uh, I, I've been, been thinking about for some time. Personally, for me, uh, you know, it struck me very strongly um, after the 2011 election. Yeah, uh, because the striking thing about the the grievances that uh, became um, uh, election issues, whether it was transport or uh, like hospital beds, or property prices, public housing prices, or uh, immigration. Uh, which the PAP, you know, very quickly acknowledged, even in the course of the campaign and soon after, that these were, in fact, serious problems. Uh, none of them, not a single one of them was new, right? For years, Singaporeans have been uh, expressing their, their grievances about this and, you know, evidently just wasn't taken seriously. Uh, so uh, it, it struck me at that point, uh, you know, soon after the 2011 election, that uh, while the post-2011 uh, response by the government certainly showed their technocratic ability uh, to solve uh, many pro big serious problems uh, once they understood they were problems. They, uh, th there's a, there was an important part of the post-mortem that didn't seem to get done, which is the hard, harder question of how did the PAP slip up in the first place uh, when all of these issues were known to the vast majority of Singaporeans for years before uh, grievances uh, you know, spilled over into uh, electoral outcomes? Um, I don't think this question was ever satisfactorily answered in the, in the uh, uh, post-2011 Precisely because the government, in, in reaction to the 2011 disappointment, uh, did recoup some of that uh, credibility and authority by uh, doing a decent enough job in solving those problems. Yeah? Uh, but that question mark was still hanging. How did they get caught out so easily? And if you ask around, whether it's, uh, you know, Public servants or people close to the government, you 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 keep getting the the um, the same response. Uh, yes, uh, there were people in the system uh, who knew, and yes, the of course there were uh, other Singaporeans who were trying to tell the government that uh, these were problems. And yet, uh, there's something not quite right in the way that uh, uh, you know the, the, these grievances. Um, uh, translated into policy, and that exactly uh, is, uh, you know, to put it very um, uh, simply, is a failure of politics. Uh, the, the other um, uh, striking case to me that again suggests that the uh, um, PAP wasn't getting its politics right was um, in the 2013 uh, white paper on population. Right. Again, we saw an instance of where you know, this is not. Uh, 
the baby in a sense had no excuse to be taken by surprise because by then surely everybody knew that the number one hot button issue in Singapore was immigration. Uh, the population white paper was touted as uh, probably the single most important consequential um, uh, document uh, blueprint for the future. So, uh, the government had more than a year to prepare for it, right? In spite of uh, this not being like a pandemic situation, which took everyone by surprise, that this was entirely planned. Again, you found the government uh, stumbling, right, uh, getting it, uh, getting it wrong in terms of uh, uh, its ability to get its message across. That very toxic 6.9 million figure, uh, which I think anyone with a sense should have been able to understand that this would not, uh, uh, you know, this would go down very badly. You had the rather embarrassing situation of where uh, the government's motion in Parliament uh, had to be amended before it was passed, um, in spite of the PAP's dominance. That's how badly this, uh, you know, the white paper went down, right? Um, and 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 more recently, you find the same mistake being made that uh, you know in, in the uh, in the um, uh, this year's general election, uh, despite the PAP knowing that uh, the uh, Jobs, jobs, jobs was what it wanted the people to focus on. It quite unnecessarily uh, stumbled into the population issue by making a hash of the, uh, the what is it, 10 million figure. Again, something entirely preventable, uh, a, a huge distraction, uh, and not a productive debate because so much of that debate had to do with misunderstandings and miscommunication. And clarifications and so on. That shouldn't be what policy making is about. So, so why why is it that uh, poly, um, uh, we haven't been able to debate population properly? I think uh, an honest uh, analysis of uh, where um, uh, we've gone wrong has to include. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that uh, it's, it's purely the policymakers' fault, but surely it has to include political clumsiness. And I think a lot of the uh, what we discuss in the book uh, is trying to understand that that uh, that, uh, that political sometimes naivety, sometimes you know uh, willful blindness. Uh, you know, uh, but uh, I'm convinced that the PP can do that. Sorry, Prof, can can you can you put it nearer your your sure. uh, uh, paper? Uh, yeah. Okay. This is good. Sure. Yeah. We're convinced that the uh, the PAP can do better on the policy side um, if it gets its politics right. Right. Okay. Uh, so I think most people would agree with with your argument, right? Uh, oh no. Okay. Most people listening uh, would agree with your argument, right? The problem is uh, that's the ideal that we want. How do you see us getting there? Because, you know, there's a saying, right? Frederick Douglass said, power consists nothing without demand. And externally, even though this was one of the PAP's worst showing, they still got 61% of the vote. Uh, so it doesn't seem like there's an external demand. And internally, the PAP is a cadre party. It's very tight-knit, ideologically homogeneous. So internally, it doesn't seem like the change is going to come from within as well. So where is the change going to come from? And is your book written more in hope rather than in expectation? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Uh, yeah, I think, Wally, you're right that societal demands for... Yeah. yeah. So, so also the PAP, as, as, as Charing was suggesting, tends to view its 
technocratic competence as somehow you know it has to be insulated from democratic pressure, it has to be insulated from democratic scrutiny. So it's not as responsive as we would like it to be to political signals, right? To the signals that uh, elections like those of 2011 and 2020 sent. So, so I think, uh, Walid, you're absolutely right. You know, both in terms of societal demands and also in terms of the PAP's capacity to respond effectively and respond quickly to political signals from elections uh, might not get us that change, right? I mean, uh, the, the third reason why I'm also somewhat you know, not that optimistic about the PAP's capacity for changes. It's been a very successful government. It's been a very successful system. Anybody who's read uh, Clayton Christensen's the, the Innovator's Dynamo would, would understand this. That success makes uh, change risky. It breeds inertia. It breeds uh, ideology and a certain intransigence. And the people who succeed in that system, they're not bad people. They're actually very competent, but competent within that system, right? So they have very little incentive. In, in fact, they have all the incentive to resist uh, fundamental change. And the fourth reason why I'm not so hopeful about change uh, is, you know, while I just read your paper with, co-written with Terence Lee of NUS, and where you both of you argue that, you know, GE 2020 was, is probably not a sufficient unfreezing event, right? Sometimes you need a, a, a large crisis, right, or a large enough, consequential enough crisis that will unfreeze present uh, behaviors and 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 and, and reshape uh, orientations and priorities. And both of you argue that G2020 plus the pandemic uh, probably do not constitute that that unfreezing event. So in that sense, I'm I agree with you, Walid, that change is not a foregone conclusion. Democratization, PAP's internal reform are probably not my central scenario. Uh, but having said that. Somebody still has to make a case, right, for why it is desirable for the PAP as well as for Singapore's long-term interests that we have an adaptive PAP, right, rather than a maladaptive one, rather than one that resists uh, change. Uh, somebody also has to make the argument that uh, in light of the, you know, contentious, perilous times we live in, uh, you know, there are parts of the Singapore system that work well, right, uh, the what I call technocracy, right? And what we need is really a better balance between technocracy and democracy, right? Rather than to view it as the, the way the PAP views it, that the only way to ensure a good technocracy, a strong technocracy, is to somehow suppress or, or limit democratic uh, pressure. Because I think if you do that, uh, in light, and in light of complexity, what arises from the suppression of democracy is the combination of technocracy and an increasingly complex world. And what you get out of that is a kind of meritocratic, technocratic elitism of the sort you see in the Davos variety. And what is the, what is the reaction of the masses right, to that sort of Davos elitism? It is the revolt against expertise that we, saw in, that we see in Trump's dystopia. Uh, so I think this is why, you know, increasingly, as I think back on why we wrote the book, the book I think that's the argument we're coming around to, right? that, that too much is at stake. Right? This is really a very consequential period uh, in Singapore's history, uh, you know, we're faced with unusually challenging and perilous times. And more so than ever, we need to strengthen our system of, uh, you know, elite governance, of, of technocracy. And the way to do that is to buttress it with greater democratic legitimacy rather than to try to suppress democracy. Right. So uh, there are a lot of people on Instagram asking whether uh, the 
the issues just now may be trying to silence the both of you i assure everyone it's not okay <laughs> reposal is nothing to do with this <laughs> it's just technical difficulties yeah um yeah i wondered if you can say you know you use this phrase revolt against expertise right and you're making a case that somebody has to defend technocratic um elite governance yeah and and i wanted to push you to say a little bit more about that like what what does that mean exactly and why we should be afraid of revolt against expertise what is it we are what is the context in which we're in that we 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 fear the alternative what is the alternative look like well the alternative uh when you have a rejection of expertise uh and you have a democratic revolt against technocratic governance and and is as i said trump's dystopia right where you know people still have to vote but they don't feel that they have benefited from that the system of globalization the system of uh of of you know meritocracy uh in the last you know 20 30 years and they use their vote to you know to 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 as as you know the way of sticking the middle finger right to corporate financial and political elites right so so i think that's what i mean when i say a lot is at stake because uh the failure of politics uh doesn't mean that's not herald the failure of democratic politics that's not herald the rise of a technocratic golden age right rather it's more likely to create figures like trump uh and and that's and and we shouldn't underestimate the likelihood of that uh even for singapore right where precisely because in precisely because in singapore we've tended to view politics as somehow unseemly right somehow uh something that shouldn't infect our system of uh you know sensible rational long-term technocratic policy making and i think that sort of argument is likely to create to build resentment against that very system that has produced you know the kind of stability and prosperity in singapore the the kind of technocratic governance I do hope that readers uh, don't miss this point here um because uh, it is um uh, an idea that is some somewhat different from the the standard uh, critique of the you know PAP's directions over the last few decades right um the the PAP has been challenged as being um uh, you know against liberal democracy and so on and most of that uh, challenge comes in the form of um uh, celebration of uh, the, the popular will right the popular will against elites um i think it is important to understand and uh, it, it's it's taken the world some time to realize uh, that uh, people power is only a very partial definition of what democracy is yeah um but uh democracy is is yes partly defined by uh, majoritarian rule right so it's a numbers game but uh, democracy is also uh, uh, defined by a very different pillar of equality uh where the rights of uh, minorities for example uh matter even if the majority opinion is against them right uh d- democracy is also defined by for example the rule of law yeah uh where uh decisions of a certain kind need in fact to be insulated from 
public opinion and the popular will, whether because uh, you know these require uh, certain managerial expertise or because uh, decisions have to be made on principle and law rather than what is popular. Uh, so democracy is all these things. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know the, the the dark side of the advance of uh, uh, democracy over the last few decades has tended to emphasize uh, uh, majority rule uh, at the expense of, um, for example, rule of law, uh, minority rights, and the principle of equality. Yeah? Um, what is new in Singapore is that some of those, in what in, for shorthand is called uh, populism, has actually uh, you know, been unleashed over the last few years in a very worrying way. Uh, you know, if you look at the history of the PAP, um, this is the last place that you would expect populism to take root because mm. um, uh, Lee Kuan Yew and, and his uh, cohort uh, were nothing if not anti-populist. A, a lot of what they did in terms of uh, you know, uh, uh, adapting Westminster-style democracy to the model that we have now was precisely about uh, insulating um, uh, managerial expertise political leadership from the vagaries of public opinion. Yeah? Uh, he was a foundly anti-populist. Um, and you would have expected that the PAP stuck true to that, you know, to, 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 perhaps to a fault, right? Uh, but in recent years, what we've seen is that the, the you know, what some scholars call the populist temptation that has gripped, uh, you know, um, countries from the U.S. to, to, to Europe, to uh, the Philippines, to India, and so on. Has uh, you know we've seen um, elements of this uh, take root in Singapore as well. Uh, we've seen the PAP indulge in the uh, the populist temptation uh, in worrying ways. This is where, for example, it uses a very irrational kind of nationalist logic to beat down uh, critics. You know where where it is prepared to uh, push aside uh, rights-based arguments. Yeah. Uh, by simply saying that, well, that's not how the majority feel. You know, all these are worrying symptoms of where uh, the, the PAP is, in fact, losing some of um, uh, its, its anti-populist roots. And of course, you know, the, uh, you can say that uh, Lee Kuan Yew and, and uh, his cohort took uh, elite governance uh, to extremes as well. It was, it was not responsive enough uh, to, to, um, uh, to public opinion. But there are, you know, we're entering this strange phase where uh, both things are true at the same time. You know, in, in some ways, the uh, the government is is uh, technocratic and elitist to uh, an extreme. Uh, in other respects, it is, seems to be prepared to play with this fire of uh, uh, of populism. Ways that are worrying, and I think what we've tried to do is to, uh, you know, sound the alarm that this is not good for Singapore, and it's certainly not good for the PP either, because I think our argument is that if you let this populist genie out of the bottle, the PP is in fact extremely ill-equipped to deal with it, right? Uh, they, they're not going to be good at this game, you know. Uh, so why not stick with the game that they that they are actually good at, which is to use its, um, you know, to 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 be the trustee of of the 
the public rather than simply to, to play with this populist fire, uh, to, to use its uh, expertise uh, to, to gather the best available people to, to lead the way by the you know, force of example rather than playing this, this uh, shallow numbers game. So uh, it, it may seem that uh, this is an extremely conservative um, idea, you know, to, to actually celebrate uh, the, the elite technocrat in, in the PAP. But I think we should clarify that we are, uh, that we also argue that uh, this in also needs to be balanced by, for example, more competition, uh, more transparency, and more openness. Because of course, uh, you know, the excess of elite government uh, can go horribly wrong as well. Maybe I could add on. Uh, yeah, so Sharon has laid it out very well. There are indeed two strands in a, demo in a functioning liberal democracy, right? First, as he says, is the majoritarian strand, right? Uh, the idea that legitimacy comes from popular sovereignty. It's majoritarian strand. Uh, the 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 ex and second, there is the pluralist liberal or equality strand, right? Which is about separation of powers. Uh, the importance of independent institutions, including a professional, non-partisan, neutral civil service, right? The rule of law and all of that. And, you know, democracies do best when they hold these two strands in a sort of healthy tension, right? In a healthy balance. Uh, if you let one side, the majoritarian side, you know, become too strong relative to the liberal pluralist strand, then you risk sliding into populism. Uh, of the sort you see in Hungary, in Poland, in Turkey, in the U.S., uh, Trump's America. If you let the liberal strand, right, uh, or the pluralist strand, uh, run riot and with no respect for democratic uh, uh, will, right, uh, no respect for popular sovereignty, then the risk is a kind of technocratic elitism, right? Uh, for a long time, we thought that that was the major risk facing Singapore. Mm -hmm. But as Sharon said, and in, in the last chapter, in the last chapter of the book, we covered this, uh, you know, the PAP riding the populist tiger. Now there is also the risk of, right, populism, right? So we face risks on both excessive majoritarianism or, or leaning or pandering to majoritarian sentiment, as well as the traditional, the older risk of, you know, elite governance taken to extremes, right? Uh, the sort of tyranny of merit, the sort of tyranny of elitism that Michael Sandel talks about in his new book, for instance, right? Can I ask why? Why do you think uh, the term populism is a good uh, is a good way to describe uh, what's going on? Uh, uh, so, so there are two parts to this question. Firstly, surely not all forms of populism is bad. I mean, Bernie Sanders and AOC would be considered populist as yeah. well. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, ultimately, it depends on which side of the spectrum uh, you're on. Uh, and secondly, isn't the very definition of populism? Uh, people rallying the masses against a corrupt elite or establishment. Yeah. So how yeah. can the PAP be populist if by definition they are the elites and they have always been the elites? I'm just, I mean, it may be, um, it may be quibbling about terminology, but I'm, I'm just curious as to why you chose the term populist uh, to describe yeah, what's going good. on with the PAP. Yeah, that's such a good question. Well, it's so good that I actually anticipated it and uh, <laughs> Right up on uh, so that where the are better, right? <laughs> no, 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 I'm not that elite. Uh, so the term populism arose in the late 19th century in America uh, during the Gilded Age, you know, high levels of inequality, crony capitalism. So it referred to the Populist Party was actually the People's Party that actually fielded 
you know, uh, candidates, a uh, president and vice president candidate in the 19, 1892 uh, U.S. elections. And they won about 10% of the vote, uh, carried four Western states, the first time since the Civil War, American Civil War, that the third party team had won, uh, had, had won electoral college votes. Uh, and what, did the, what was the platform of this uh, populist party? What was it? It was a left-wing agrarian uh, populist party. It stood for right, supporting the interests of farmers. They tried to appeal to laborers in the cities. They weren't very successful, but they were quite successful in the south in the west, which were mostly farming uh, uh, districts. Uh, they, they were for things like uh, you know, have, establishing uh, a, a currency fiat, having expansionary mon monetary policy. But above all, they were about curbing financial and corporate interests. Right? So you're absolutely right. I mean, in today's context, it would be someone like Bernie Sanders, AOC, who's, you, whom, whom we would call these are left-wing populists. Right? Uh, but what we've seen uh, alongside that, that left-wing populism is a kind of right-wing nationalist, aggressive, reactionary, uh, certainly xenophobic in uh, Trump's case, in Obama's case, in even in uh, Modi's case, ethno-nationalism, right? So a kind of aggressive right-wing reactionary populism. Uh, we don't get to choose these terms. Uh, we use these terms because these are the, that's how politicians like Duterte and Obama and, and Trump are described. Uh, so that's, that's on, on, but you're absolutely right, uh, uh, Walid, that not all forms of populism are bad. I mean, you know, uh, to the extent that it's a movement against the concentration of wealth and power in the hands of elites, right? corporate, financial, political elites. That's uh, not necessarily a bad thing, right? Uh, Duterte's uh, support, popular support, rests a lot on his anti-establishment credentials. And if you know how unequal and how uh, corrupt right, uh, those financial elites are, can be, you, you can kind of understand why, why he rose to power. Uh, I think the problem with the sort of you know, right-wing populism is that although they claim to represent the will of the people against these old establishment, against this, these uh, corporate and political elites, what do they actually offer in substantive terms, right, in policy terms that would actually reduce inequality, that would cut down the, uh, uh, the, that concentration of power? Uh, secondly, uh, these populists are not particularly committed to the liberal aspects, the pluralist aspects of democracy, right? They undermine rule of law. They challenge the idea that minorities have rights and liberties, right? And as we are seeing with Trump, when they lose elections, even though, you know, Trump didn't win the popular vote, right? So he won the elections in 2016 on account of a system, the electoral college vote system, that is, that is designed to prevent tyranny of majority. Having gone, <laughs> having got into power on the backs of the liberal, right, uh, pluralist strand of democracy, he then attacks it. And now when he's, and in this election where he's clearly lost the election, uh, you know, suddenly even the, the majoritarian democratic aspects of democracy, he does not support. So in other words, the problem with populists is not that they rail against populists. It's not that they are against inherently popular sovereignty. It's that when the results don't turn their way, they say that they, are, they still represent right. the popular will. They still represent right. the people. It's, the, it's this deep state that is subverting, that is undermining right. uh, that popular will. Right? And that is very prob problematic. So, so populists are against, uh, or populism rep represents a threat 
to democracy in very specific ways, right? It is not necessarily a threat against this idea of majoritarianism, against this idea of the popular will. Uh, it is this attack on liberal institutions. And when I use liberal here, I want readers to be very clear. We, we're not talking about liberals as opposed to conservatives, which is how we usually use the term. We are using liberals as opposed to authoritarian governance, right? Right. Uh, we're using liberal in the sense of liberal constitutionalism, right? Protection of rights. Uh, especially of minorities, protection of our liberties, uh, separation of powers, rule of law, uh, you know, independent institutions. Yeah. I don't know. Sharon, you want to add on to why? Maybe I'll just add to that uh, the international dimension, right? Uh, I mean, if Singapore was in um, its own uh, bubble, yeah, uh, and was in complete control of all the, um, uh, the the dynamics that affect its own society, then I wouldn't be that worried about the way in which the the PAP uh, plays with these majoritarian arguments, right? The way it, uh, for example, um, uh, silences the uh, the uh, LGBT, LGBT rights lobby by saying that, oh, the majority are not with you, uh, and the kind of argument that it uses against many critics, or oh, you know, these are just a, a small group, uh, the, the, the popular will is against you, and so on. It's no big deal. I mean, that's kind of normal politics. What, what worries me is the, the, the uh, international dimension, because um, we're a small country, right? <laughs> we, we cannot afford uh, at any level uh, to play the numbers game uh, in a way that's not balanced with principle, yeah, with uh, rule of law and very clear, uh, uh, a very clear notion of rights. We cannot afford to because we're surrounded by much, much bigger countries. Yeah, uh, if you look at uh, where uh, you know th these forces are probably the most frightening, uh, they are in India. Yeah, uh, such such um, uh, majoritarian uh, tendencies in the form of religious nationalism and so on is likely to seep into Singapore. Uh, Ethno-nationalism is on the rise in uh, mainland China. It is likely to seep in Singapore. Uh, what is going to protect uh, Singapore society from these um, uh, very strong tendencies in, in societies far bigger than us? Uh, it is uh, nothing other than a very um, you know, a clear consensus in our country that, uh, no, the numbers game, in fact, does not matter. Uh, we are sticking with principle. It doesn't matter that, uh, uh, you know, uh, one billion people tell us we're wrong. We still feel we're right. right? We, we need that kind of instinct. Uh, we need that kind of, of, of uh, uh, sensibility in our bones, uh, you know, uh, among policy makers, but also among ordinary citizens. Because if you don't, you know, if you don't uh, uh, cultivate this very strong sense that, uh, you know, that um, uh, civic values matter, that human rights matter, and so on, um, I don't think we'll be adequately prepared for the kinds of arguments that are going to come our way from outside of Singapore that, uh, oh, we should bend this way or that uh, because, after all, one billion people can't be wrong. Yeah? Uh, so, uh, fortunately, we have time to do that. You know, uh, uh, a country like the U.S., which, of course, is very much in the news right now, uh, you know, in some ways, it's almost too late to put the genie back in the bottle. It's almost, it's, it's, it is too late, I think, uh, to, to, to rebuild trust, uh, to, to restructure the economy, um, 
<clears throat> it is not too late for Singapore. It is not too late for Singapore. You know, we, we can, in fact, uh, get the politics right in this very, very important way, as well as the economics right. Mm. Thanks very much. I, I think um, you've painted a really sort of um, concrete as well as comprehensive you know, answer around you know, why this is so important now. I wanted to go back to this, the uh, observation, Sharon, you started with that there's, there is a fair bit of skepticism among the audience about the possibility of reform, right? And I wondered if you could say a bit more about what do you think are the tendencies and capacities within our current system that indicate the possibility, and, and specifically, you know, because you've mentioned institutions, you know, what, what are some of the things that exist in our institutions where that point to possibility? And, and secondly, uh, Sharon, because because Sharon raised the, the, the question of, sorry, can both, yeah, yeah, Mr. Yeah, actually, yeah, it's okay, okay. yeah. Um, Sharon, you, you said that what we need is not just, um, not just the institutions, but also a certain sensibility, maybe a, a certain political culture, right, uh, among ordinary people. And so I wonder whether you could say something or whether you would like to comment about um, the possibility of reform, not just from the perspective of, you know, the PAPs, the PAPs own internal dynamics, right, but also what is the role of civil society, what's the role of ordinary citizens in this? Um, yeah, the, the possibility of reform, um, well, I think one thing you've got to understand about uh, Donald and me, right, we don't have actually that much in common, different biographies, uh, we, are, we are similar in two, uh, I think, significant ways, right, one is that we didn't go to Raffles Institution, <laughs> right, uh, we, we are both uh, Hua Chong alumni, yeah, uh, and I think Hua Chong alumni have a certain uh, characteristic about them. Uh, number one, uh, we're quite accustomed to not being in the center of uh, power, not being right all the time, you know, because that's RI territory, right? So the, <laughs> the, the other thing that we have in common is that we're both Manchester United fans, right? Uh, yeah. So you what both have you, terrible taste. I don't know what Newcastle fans can say about that, but so the, why is this important? It, it is important because uh, I think for both of us, um, we're quite comfortable siding with apparently lost causes. Yeah? Uh, <laughs> if we weren't, we would have tried to get into RI and we would be supporting uh, Liverpool or Manchester City. Right. Uh, so you know the, the fact that people the the fact that people tell us that oh you know uh, you're just dreaming you know there's so little chance that uh, the reforms that you're in favour of will actually materialise it cuts no ice with us it's okay you know, we're all right about about pursuing <laughs> things that we believe in our heart even if the majority don't and so on right uh, the, the the other important thing about our book is that. We're not making predictions, right? Uh, we're not saying that the PAP probably will reform. In fact, as, as uh, Donald mentioned earlier, uh, chances, I think, are quite slim. It's just that we just feel an obligation uh, to, uh, to push for that change, uh, even if chances are slim, right? So, so we're interested in the possibility uh, of change because uh, we think it's something good for Singapore. And the same is true whether we're talking about... Uh, 
reforming the you know the the centers of power within the PAP or the wider society. I mean, of course, there there are many discouraging signs, right, of a, of a society that is uh, uh, overly materialistic and uh, uh, what else? Uh, you know, uh, if you ask people outside of Singapore, they'll say that we're a soulless society and so on. And and maybe that does in fact uh, characterize a large number of Singaporeans. But no, I mean, I mean, I think we have met um, more than our fair share of uh, Singaporeans, young and old, uh, who are idealistic, who are prepared to, to work for the common good, who are doing all kinds of interesting things uh, on the fringes, right? Uh, they too are not bothered by the fact that they didn't go to RI, right? So, <laughs> okay. But uh, they... Uh, they uh, and these people are there, right? Uh, they're, they're not necessarily heralded in the media. Uh, they're, they're not necessarily looking for fame and fortune. Um, th there is uh, so much uh, to be encouraged by in, in Singapore. Um, uh, so, so where can this head? Uh, our own uh, hope is that uh, you know the, these um, uh, Singaporeans who understand that a society is not just built on um, tribal loyalties, that a society isn't just built on looking after your family or looking after people who are like you. Uh, it also depends on uh, uh, the, the obligation that we owe to strangers, people who are different from us and even people we don't like. Yeah? Uh, are there, does this de define the majority of Singaporeans? Probably not. Are there enough of such Singaporeans to do great things for Singapore, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what is stopping them? Um, uh, this is where I think, uh, again, we, and we need to come back to, to government policy uh, and the, the space that uh, government gives to, to, for example, civil society. Uh, it still is not enough. You know, it is still uh, a, a very narrow view of uh, what kind of citizen engagement is welcome. Uh, things that uh, might inconvenience policymakers is not welcome, and and these attitudes need to change because we do we do need to unleash the um, uh, not just the economic entrepreneurs, but also the social entrepreneurs in Singapore who are treated very differently from the economic entrepreneurs, and that balance needs to be uh, to be redressed. I think. So the book is not really a call to action, but it's a pouring of your heart, based on whatever <laughs> you just said. <laughs> Is is it a, sorry? The question was: Is it a call to action or uh, no? It it is a call. It is it is a call to action. <laughs> it it is a call to action. But you know, uh, I guess you know it, we're not the kind of people who would uh, uh, issue a call to action only if we think we're going to win. No, right? right, I mean, right, right. <laughs> even even if there's just a slim. It, well, uh, yeah, exactly. As Donald said, it's precisely because we think that uh, this is uh, uh, not really a vote winner, right? This is not an uh, easily marketable idea. That's why we are, you know, uh, we are almost duty-bound uh, as, as academics, as, you know, as, as writers, as thinkers, uh, to raise these ideas that are not going to be put forward by many politicians because it's necessarily not necessarily going to win votes. It is not necessarily going to be put forward by business because it's not going to make money, right? Uh, but that doesn't mean that these ideas are wrong, right? Uh, and, and that's what we're pushing.
Okay. So shall we take a couple of minutes break while we sort off some issues as well and we can do the Instagram thing?